Today's podcast is brought to you by Happy Life Herbals. If you're like me and are curious about the benefits of CBD and you haven't tried them before, head over to happylifeherbals.com and take a look at their products. CBD has been reported to potentially relieve symptoms of anxiety as well as other chronic pain. Check with your doctor to see if CBD may be right for you and then head on over to happylifeherbals.com If you choose one of their products and use the word Suburban, that's S-U-B-U-R-B-A-N at checkout, the Suburban Folk Podcast will receive a small portion of your purchase, which helps support the show so we can bring you more content. Also, if you have a podcast or are thinking about starting a podcast, reach out to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com to discuss how I can help you with editing, production, music, or whatever is standing in your way from getting your voice heard. Again, that's greg at suburbanfolk.com. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic is around career advice. And while we don't discuss this much on our show, it has a direct link to our financial episodes. For most of us, the majority of our income comes from our salary. And if you've ever tried to start a business or climb the corporate ladder, you've likely had to manage a team and know the challenges that come with that. Our guest today is Danessa Knapp. She's the author of Naked at Work, an elite executive coach and a leadership expert. An energetic, engaging, and relatable keynote speaker, Danessa inspires audiences to be bold and brave at work. She spent more than 20 years as both a senior corporate leader and an entrepreneur before founding Avenue 8 Advisors. Today, she's a trusted advisor to C-suite teams across industries. She guides audiences through leadership theory, research, and real-life examples to practical, implementable, personal, and organizational solutions. Thanks, Vanessa, so much for joining the show today. I'm really excited to talk about your book. I actually just completed it last week, and it only took me about two to three days. So that should say something about how it keeps the reader engaged in the topic at hand around leadership and specifically how to be authentic. Can you kick us off by describing your background and what got you to the point of writing the book Naked at Work? Absolutely, Greg. Thanks so much for having me Um, and for reading the book. uh, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. So I am an executive coach today, but I wasn't always. I grew up, if you will, in corporate America and spent uh, the better part of 20 years in a Fortune 100 organization as a senior leader there. I left there a couple of times and started my own businesses and sold them and then would sort of pop back in and out. So I had some deep experience in leadership. And about five years ago, I decided that I was more interested in how leaders think and act than the actual work they were doing. And so I left my corporate gig and enrolled in Georgetown's coaching program and became a a certified executive coach. And 
After I established my practice and began to coach senior leaders, and at this point, I've coached hundreds of senior leaders all across the world in industries big and small, I realized that all of them, while they have a really unique experience, have some common threads that connect them. And as I began to explore those threads, I thought, you know, it would be really interesting to pull this all together, pair it with sort of what the data and research says about leadership, and talk about what's typically in leaders' way and talk about it in a way that's really accessible. Because let's be real, Greg, while uh, many folks can be exposed to leadership development or um books, very few can be exposed to executive coaching. That's sort of a level that's uh, retained and and is sits at the leadership ranks and it's kind of expensive. And I thought, what if all leaders had access to this information? And that was really the uh, thought that ultimately spurred the book. To that point, I noticed that a lot of the lessons and what gets in people's way can be applied probably to leaders at all levels. For example, what it seems you found is there is a common thread for people to view that they are somehow lesser than all of their colleagues. So of course, that could apply at a supervisor, manager, director, so on and up level. So I would certainly say a lot of what you're presenting can apply to anybody at any level of a corporation that they could presumably start to apply. And why do you think that is that somebody in a leadership role looks left, looks right at their peers and just assumes that those people have it more together than they do? Well, I think that's a habit we have in our lives, right? And I think it's, you know, when we think about it from a social media perspective, it's because we say we're seeing everybody else's highlight reel and we're seeing the full cut of everything we've ever been a part of when we look at ourselves. I think that's true for leaders too. You know, when we think of ourselves, if your listener thinks of themselves up until now, they think of every screw up, every hiccup, everything that went left fast. And they don't see how they look today, how they show up in a room. But what they're seeing is how everybody else shows up in a room, everybody else's current state. And we compare that with our historical state up until now. So, you know, when I walk in a room, I walk in with every assessment I've made about myself since I was, you know, old enough to think about myself, 7, 8, 16, 22, 30. And I'm just looking at what I believe is everybody else's finished product. And so it's natural to think, I bet they've never screwed that up or they seem really together. When in fact, the data would suggest that other people might be thinking that too. One piece that stuck out to me in the beginning chapters, because you lay it out of, again, what could be in somebody's way and what is universal from leader to leader. You have an example of a new mom who was doing everything that she could to not let people know how the responsibilities of being a new mom could potentially be getting in the way of what she was doing. And in particular, you hit business travel that uh, she had to make a decision whether or not to go and do a sales presentation uh, 
live or virtually, and especially in the environment we have right now, I'm curious if you think that trend is going to start to shift as far as the need for business travel, and then maybe even talk a little bit about that example and how um, Emily, the, the person that is in the story, shifted the way that she started operating so she wasn't hiding what she had going on uh, outside of work. Yeah, absolutely. So Emily, and to be clear, these are all very real stories, but uh, confidentiality is the cornerstone of coaching. So while these are my client stories, I've changed a lot of the details so that folks recognize themselves. It's been fun as my clients have started to read it to see uh, where they think they recognize themselves wouldn't be right yet. Um, so Emily had recently had a baby and she was in private equity and had to travel cross country for a pitch. And she made the recommendation not to travel. It was a long shot pitch. They were going to have to turn around two coast to coast flights in less than 24 hours. And it was just brutal. And the team agreed with her. They ultimately lost the pitch. By the time she and I were talking about it, she believed that she had been the source of that perceived failure, that if they'd traveled, maybe they'd had a chance. When in fact, her teammates really appreciated that they hadn't traveled and nobody thought they were going to get that pitch anyway. So they were even more grateful they hadn't traveled because it really would have sucked to have traveled that way, turned it around quickly and not gotten it. So Emily was walking around with this assessment, this story she was telling herself that she had cost the team this pitch when everybody else was thinking, wow, I wish Emily would speak up more often. Now, you could argue this a hundred ways, right? Perhaps other people should speak up if they didn't want the travel. You shouldn't pin it on uh, the one person who did and expect them to do it again. But it's an example of how sometimes when we step out of our comfort zone and say the thing that's on our mind, we have one idea of how that went and other people have a totally different idea. With regards to business travel, yeah, I think, Greg, all of that is changing and for the good, right? So I don't know how much time you spend thinking about future of work or how much time your listeners spend thinking about that. But the truth is we are on the brink of a revolution about how we complete our work. And for many of us, they believe up to 60% of us, our day-to-day -day work will dramatically change with the advent of AI. And so we're going to have to be ready to do things really differently. And in some ways, that's a small silver lining of this pandemic is we are able to jump into something forced, if you will, to jump into something that might have taken us much longer to adapt to by choice. And the truth is reducing our travel has positive benefits for the environment, positive benefits for everyone involved in terms of work-life balance, and doesn't always dramatically reduce the impact of that work together. Yes, we should know each other well when we do business. And so that sometimes involves travel, but not nearly as frequently as we think it is. And I think that's something we'll learn. And we may not return to our status quo as we emerge from our current situation. I, I totally agree. I wonder if maybe for a time we will snap back to what everybody is used to, but it will at least be a window into where we're going with remote work and flexibility because the technology is there. And like you said, the 
benefits to the environment. If nothing else, maybe with the COVID issues going on right now, it can give us a path for ways to start to handle environmental issues <laughs> because we've had to in this case. So as long as we keep the eye on the ball from a business standpoint, and of course, just life in general, that could be one of the big silver linings that put it front and center for the global community to really start to address. Of course, picking on the cruise industry a little bit is one area that clearly they're going to be front and center to see what can be done to minimize global uh, environmental impact. Yeah, absolutely. One of the key themes that you describe is a calculation, if you will, of performance equals per potential minus interference. Can you describe what that formula means and maybe even give an example to help illustrate? Yeah, absolutely. And first, let me be clear. While I wish this elegant and uh, universally applicable equation was mine, Greg, it's not. It belongs to a guy named Tim Galway. So the idea here is that your performance on any given task, anything you can think of at all, baking the perfect sourdough bread or uh, your backhand at tennis or the presentation in front of the board, your performance on that task is simply a matter of your potential for that task. So what do you know? What's the raw ability there? What's the, uh, what's the upside? What is possible? minus what's in the way for you, the interference. And so if we think about baking sourdough bread. Baking sourdough bread, your potential might be good if you have an oven, if you have a recipe, and if you are able-bodied, right? Ingredients might be part of that too. Your interference might be you've heard it's hard, you don't have time, you don't read directions, you have failed before. Same for a train reaching maximum speed on the tracks. So a train has a maximum speed of 120 miles per hour. It will reach that speed. It will reach its potential unless there's a tree on the tracks, unless there's friction that's unexpected. So when we think about leaders in this equation, we want to think about what's your potential for the task? Is there anything you need to address or need to go learn? And then what's in the way for you? And while there are sometimes external factors in the way, for most of us, it's an internal game. And it's what's in our head about it. It's what we believe about leaders. I had uh, a client who is in a very senior legal position for an enormous company. And she is the candidate now the successful named candidate for the chief general counsel role. And while she was being evaluated for that, she would walk into a room and temper herself because she would have looked up all the other attorneys in the room and they would have gone to Ivy League law schools. My client didn't go to an Ivy League law school. She put herself through law school at night while she was waiting tables. And she went to a, a good law school, but it was a local law school. And that was in her way. It made her second guess what she had to say. Once she worked through that, once she decided to just accept what was and move forward with what she could do, people started to respond to her more effectively. 
And the only change was she stopped giving credence to the story in her head. She stopped letting it interfere. And there are a couple examples in the book about looking at people's education and then the person devaluing themselves because they don't have that same education. I will say that it rang true with me. The first job I had out of school was a management development job. And there was a guy that had an Ivy League background. Um, Now, going to an example that you have later in the book, I am a metalhead, actually. And so you have an example of the former drummer of the Beatles before they became the Beatles and Dave Mustaine, formerly of Metallica. And um, I probably fall into the Dave Mustaine category that you – never quite add up and that fuels you. And for people that aren't familiar with Megadeth, they have a ton of albums, plenty of Grammys. Anybody that knows guitar and is a metalhead like myself know that Dave Mustaine is up there in the upper echelons. But what you're describing, of course, is that he could never measure up. And that's probably part of what (laughs) forced him to continue to produce and so on. With the lesson being that if you continue to have that mindset, you're probably never going to be satisfied, right? Yeah. And Greg, that is such an important thing to call out. And I'm so so glad that you brought it up. So just for your listeners who don't know the story, essentially Dave Mustaine was in the band Metallica, got booted out and formed the band Megadeth. Megadeth, by all accounts, is essentially one of the, the number two band behind Metallica as we look at historical impact of metal bands. And Dave is pissed about it still, still, you know, Metallica for a lot of us is, is in our high school days and we're sitting firmly in our mid forties. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, But this guy is still giving interviews where he's mad that the band booted him out. It's this huge source of interference for him. And your point, Greg, on the fuel is a really important one. And it's one that frankly, I'm not sure I made as well as I would like to in this book, but I will continue to make as I continue to write. And that is that, yes, you can be fueled by what you believe is less than. And in fact, when I work with leaders on this, a lot of them get a little nervous about letting go of it, right? Because it's gotten them this far. When I say, hey, just let that go, they're like, "Uh, what if I just become complacent? I don't get shit done anymore. Like, I'm just going to sit around. No, I can always be better. There's this kind of uh, relentless drive to some of the leaders I work with. And the point that's important here is that that is expensive fuel that burns hot. And so, yes, believing you are less than may give you some of your edge. It may make you run faster. It may make you train harder. You're right. But it also burns you from the inside out. There are studies done mainly out of uh, Philly around um, positive psychology. And while it sounds super kumbaya, it's the truth, which is when we fuel ourselves by thinking, hey, this is something that I do well. This is something that I can contribute. We're then not spending any energy on concealing what we think is something that makes us less than. And we have more energy to devote to the task. 
So I love that you brought up, Greg, that point about fuel, because it's really true. When we think we're less than or when we have that interference, it both serves and limits us. It serves us in that it pushes us to run faster, but it limits us because we're trapped in this constant negative cycle about ourselves. I also wonder if there could be another pitfall in that it might put blinders on as to whether or not you're doing whatever work you're actually passionate about. So in other words, if you're so focused on climbing the corporate ladder, you may not be saying, am I in the industry that I want to be in? Am I working on something that I believe is actually going to make a difference? And is it really just all about showing everybody that I can do this thing that I happen to fall into? Did you win the wrong race? Right? Right. So I have a client who that's the metaphor we use. She was a really great uh, performer at work. We talked about it as running. She was relentless, you know, put out something I want to do, do better, run faster, jump higher. And one of the questions I ask clients throughout an engagement is for the sake of what are you working And while many of us say putting food on the table, the truth is, if folks are privileged enough to be listening to this podcast, Greg, they've got a lot of options to get food on the table. And they're probably not working for food. You're probably working for something else. And so we we kind of pull at that question a lot in coaching for the sake of what are you working? And what she got to was, I want to win. Okay, so she'd worked really hard at winning. And she was winning. She was moving really rapidly down a path that she was leading the group on. The problem was she could see where it led. She saw where she was going to be promoted. And she had zero interest in that. And so here she was running and winning a race that the prize wasn't anything she wanted. A phrase that I use as a bit of a litmus test for whether or not you're in an industry or part of a company that you want to be is if you're sitting at a bar and you start chatting with a stranger, are you going to want to start talking about the thing you do for a living? And do you believe that it would keep the interest of that person, (laughs) which also translates to does it keep your own interest? Or if you're at the bar, you're going to start talking about sports or entertainment or fill in the blank other thing that might be a way for you to know whether or not you are truly interested or truly passionate about the work you're doing. I think um, for me, when I was in corporate work, I had a bit of the same experience. It was interesting to me. It held my attention. I worked with smart people. I had a team I loved. I really enjoyed the company I worked with. And still, I never talked about it. My family couldn't tell you what I did. I wasn't connected to purpose at all with it. And as I switched my career and sort of followed what I was interested in, man, first, a lot of people thought I was crazy because walking away from a company uh, and a role that I had was is a little unusual, especially with no plan, right? Walking away and going back to school and being like, I might do this, I might not. Hard to say. Um, <laughs> and yet I work harder as an executive coach in helping people define their leadership, grow their teams in writing this book than I ever did 
in my corporate gig, and it requires half the energy. I would be absolutely happy to, if I knew that my children were occupied and happy and off, uh, you know, off enjoying themselves, to work through an entire weekend all day. I love this work. I love the difference it makes. It fuels me. And that's the difference between expensive fuel that consumes you and positive fuel that pushes you further. Another comparison to social distancing that we're doing right now and the layoffs, I would probably even fall into this category that we're programmed to think that there is something safe about the corporate jobs and the big companies. But hey, we're seeing right now that it's safe until it isn't safe. <laughs> um, and so, especially for people that have certain technology around and depending on what their skills are, never before has there been the ability to amass new skills at fairly cheap prices, you know, historically speaking, uh, and then figure out what you want to actually be doing. Most people, certainly ones that are listening to this podcast, are probably not in the scenario where they have to work to get food on the table. They are probably in more of a self-realization opportunity mode. And again, I think the corporate jobs are not necessarily as safe as we might think they are. Jumping back to the interference part, and this gets us into a big theme of the book around the word shame. And I got to imagine... That's a pretty intentional word that you use because it's a fairly off-putting word, if that's the right way to say it for most people. Uh, but of course, when you read the technical definition as far as less than, and it goes back to what we started with, that you assume everybody else somehow has it more together, you can start to see how, yeah, that probably is a pretty universal interference. Can you tell us about more specifics about how shame manifests itself and why it becomes such a barrier for people? Absolutely, Greg. And to your point, I got the first draft of the book back from my editor. And she was like, I actually think you mean maybe embarrassment or worry or anxiety. And I was like, nope, I mean shame. <laughs> <laughs> And I think we've been conditioned, even with those words, to avoid this idea of shame. If you think about embarrassment or anxiety, it's because you're worried about being shamed, right? You're embarrassed or anxious because someone might shame you or you might show up differently or you might feel shame. But we don't talk about that word, right? Brene Brown is the leading uh a researcher and thought leader in this space. And she talks about, you know, and I put it in the book. So you've seen it, Greg, people won't even talk to her on airplanes about it when she tells people what she does. Same researcher. So I'd encourage your listeners to just think about where does shame play a part in your life? How do you think about it? You know, think about when you're cleaning your closet and you take a before and after photo and you think, wow, this is amazing, but I don't want to post that before picture. Or I, whatever folks are wearing now, you know, they won't stand up on a video conference because they're wearing their sweatpants. <laughs> right? For, Who cares? Yeah, for sure. The only thing holding you back in that space is a conditioned shame response that you should be doing something else that you're not. You should be wearing something else. Your before should look different. 
right? There's that should that's involved with shame, with this idea of there is a standard and I don't meet it. There's a cost to belonging and I can't pay it. So that's the idea of shame and how prevalent it is for us. And when we can peel back all the words we use to neutralize it, that's at the root, that there is some standard for the thing you're doing that you think you don't meet or might not meet if it's future shame, right? Because it's either concealing past shame or avoiding future shame. And you've got to work to make it look like you fit in. And how does that compare to imposter syndrome? I think you reference imposter syndrome in the book, but can you describe how these two concepts are different? Yeah. So imposter syndrome is the idea that you are just faking it in a role. And it it is a very real thing that a lot of folks face. But for me, this is bigger than imposter syndrome. It's a more generalized way to think about it. Because the truth is, very senior leaders don't spend all their energy worrying that they don't deserve to be there. They generally accept that they've earned some part of it, some piece of it. They feel comfortable with parts of it, but there's something still in their way, whether it's where they went to school or their regional accent or how they think about something or that they grew up in a way that's different than other people. There's something that's on their list that they think, hey, this doesn't belong here. And so I'm going to invest energy and time in making sure it doesn't show up. And so that's how those are different. This is a more um, a more generic version. I think when I would read about imposter syndrome in my corporate career, I think, well, that's not me, right? I don't. I know that I've earned this. It felt uh, too constrictive. It was sort of like, oh, I just have this one part I kind of worry about or don't think about or you know think that's different than other people. And so what I wanted to do with this book is to say, hey this is so prevalent, this is so common and so distracting from our own efficiency that all of us should be thinking about it. It's not a specific syndrome some people have and don't, and it doesn't affect everything in your life. One of my most anticipated questions I want you to talk about is your story around when your company for meals that get created and then people can take them home. And when you got a large order, basically try to take it all on yourself. I believe it was ZD, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're having to try to create. Tell us about that example and then some of the things that you could have done that maybe the fear of shame was preventing you from doing as far as asking for help and being real with yourself. Yeah. So that was a really good example for me. And the reason I put it in the book is it was a microcosm of what was happening in the business as a whole. So I owned a business called My Girlfriend's Kitchen, and it was a make it and take it dinner store. So people would come in, make their meals and take them home. They'd put them in the freezer and then they'd have a dozen ready to ready to cook meals that they had actually made. So they were customized for their family, but they could do that all in two hours because we did all the prepping, shopping, chopping, dicing, all of that. And what I wanted to do with that business was to support busy families, particularly working women, because let's face it, dinner still falls to women most of the time in the US. And I had done that, but it was nearing 2008. The economy was beginning to show some cracks and 
the business was beginning to slow. We'd, it had gone gangbusters in the beginning. And so as it was starting to slow, I was more and more sort of diving in, trying to do things, trying to save this business and really worried about it, but not having a conversation about it. So we'd gotten this huge order for baked ZD and it was an employer who had ordered bunches of them to give to their uh, employees to take home on a Friday as sort of a a bravo for, for work they'd done well. And I couldn't afford to pay somebody to put them together. And I vastly underestimated, Greg, how long it would take me to put these ZDs together. So I called my husband after the store closed around six and I said, hey, I'm going to pop these together. I'll be home after the boys are in bed. And I'm thinking kind of 1030-ish. The next thing I know, it's the wee hours of the morning. I'm elbow deep in ZD and I have no idea both how I got here, how I ever thought this was going to happen and how I'm ever going to get out, right? It was clear the order wasn't going to be ready. And at that point, I was just paralyzed, right? They were coming to pick up the order. It's three o'clock in the morning. I can't do anything about it. I felt like I couldn't call anybody in and I just had to keep going. And that was really a metaphor for what was happening in the business, When I look back on it, and certainly when I my team arrived that morning, they were, you know, gasping, dropping their bags, scrubbing in, and saying, you know, why didn't you call us? This is ridiculous. You could you were never gonna get this done. And I just stood there and I thought, yeah, I I guess I see that now. There wasn't any possibility of me doing this differently. And so it would have been better to call it early and ask for help. But something stood in my way of doing that. I didn't want to admit that I'd gotten in over my head. But it wasn't even conscious, Greg, right? If you told me at three o'clock, hey, admit you're in over your head, I would have said, of course, I'm in over my head. (laughs) Yeah. The idea of then ask for help, then admit that vulnerability was one that I didn't know well at the time. It didn't occur to me. Just keep going was my mantra. And the same happened in the business. Months later, when I sat in front of my banker and said, look, like, here's the problem. Here's everything I've tried. What he said to me is, why don't you call me sooner? Let me help you. And so much of what we do is guided by what we believe is right or acceptable or possible. When the truth is, and the book teaches you how to do this, those are all stories we tell ourselves that can be amended. So what's possible isn't ever what you think the first time. And what needs to happen, quote unquote, what you should do, quote unquote, can always be bigger or different than what you first think. And that's a powerful lesson for me personally, one that the universe has given me many opportunities to learn and uh, an important lesson for leaders I work with. An emphasis on the word believe which is another significant theme to get across to the readers is facts of a situation can be very different than the assessment of the situation. Uh, And even for the story of Emily, similar different perspective on the reasons why they didn't get the business from her colleagues as compared to for herself. So can you give some examples either, yeah, in your experience there or others where 
people's assessments are harsher or maybe even placing blame on the wrong things than the other people around them. Yeah. Well, I think we're living in this place of facts versus assessments right now. Mm-hmm. And so COVID-19 has made that really relevant. And so let's be clear, what I'm about to say sounds like there aren't any facts and that I'm in a camp of, you know, the truth is uh, kind of a movable, amorphous thing. That is all what I'm saying. There are facts, they are immutable, and there are many fewer facts about any given topic than we walk around believing and operating there are. So there is a fact, for example, about how COVID-19 spreads. The problem is we don't yet understand it. So we have lots of evidence around it's spread by touch contact. We know that. It may also be spread by vapor. We think we know that, and certainly we may know that by the time this airs, Greg. But People then make lots of assessments about that that then they treat as fact. You do or do not have to wear a mask, right? The mask piece is an assessment until we understand how it spreads. And so those of us who sort of looked at folks wearing masks 30 days ago and thought, well, that's silly. They must be sick might have a different assessment of it now, right? Oh, thank you for protecting me and the rest of the shoppers in the event you're an asymptomatic carrier, right? Same fact, the person is wearing a mask. Our assessment of that has changed given the new information we have. And so we've got to be really careful. Even things like I'm tall or my daughter is active or my son is quiet. Those are assessments The facts behind them is your daughter's actual height, or excuse me, your own actual height, your daughter's actual minutes spent on activity, your son's words spoken in a day. And assessments serve us, right? They help us make decisions quickly, move through the day quickly. We're constantly assessing, is it safe to move through the intersection? When I sit in the car, does it look and feel like every other time I've sat in a car? Or is there something I need to pay attention to when I turn the key and the engine sounds, right? Those assessments serve us, but they also limit us. Even taking this to the next level of the limitations and assessments is this concept of failure, um, which is another chapter in the book. Another one that really spoke to me because, A, to some extent, I feel like the term fail fast is something that can get said in some company environments, but they don't necessarily believe it. Uh, and But I do totally agree with the way you describe uh, that people masking failure can have such a literal cost, both in the baggage that comes along with interacting with the different teams, as well as the actual bottom line, because you're actually the, the phrase that kept going. I think this is a Simpsons quote in my head. That's um, if at first you don't succeed. Uh, destroy all evidence that you tried. <laughs> and, and again, there is a cost to that. So can you talk a little bit about how yeah, failure can, fear of failure can cause these kinds of issues relates to people's assessments as well and how that can all be a detriment? 
Yeah. So the first thing is when people know that I talk about and study failure, they're like, oh, you know what? I'm down with that. Like, I love how you're talking about it, but how do I make failure suck less? <laughs> like, let's be clear. Failure is always super painful, usually humiliating, really disappointing, right? Like I have a number of failures in my life. And what I say in the book, I, I detail them in excruciating detail. Um, I'm grateful for each one of them and each one of them has broken my heart, right? So to start with, failure is super painful. And that's part of why I think we avoid it is we think maybe we did it wrong or we don't want to go through that again. So to be clear, there's no cliff notes for getting through failure in a way that makes it better, except just to say that it is something. There are gifts in that. And as we think about it, as we look at it, we have opportunity to examine it and move faster to get what we can learn out of it. So I give the example in the book of this um, horrifying thing that happened to me when I was yeah. pretty sure that any 16-year-old on earth would label this worse than death. Um, I certainly did. I forgot all the words to a song I was singing in front of an audience of more than 300 people three nights in a row, Greg. Three nights in a row. It never got any better. I coming and dancing, just humiliated in front of my whole town. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. And it made me fearless. It fueled so much risk-taking in the next decade because I was sort of of the camp of, I have already had the most embarrassing thing that could ever happen to me happen. So I'm just going to say this thing, I think. And so that's an example of really powerful things come out of failure if we can divorce them from shame. That's my favorite story in the book, I have to say. Not not that I'm enjoying your pain in telling the story, but it, it just everybody can relate to it, right? Because there is the fear of public speaking, or in this case, uh, being in a, a show, singing a song, I think is a big fear probably for yeah. a lot of people as well. And then, yeah, forgetting all the words really just compounds that. And then again, on top of that, that you clarify, it was three nights in a row, so it didn't necessarily get better. The triumph at the end <laughs> doesn't doesn't happen in this particular instance. So I'm glad you mentioned that story. It was, like I said, definitely one of my favorite parts to your point, once you realize that it wasn't the end of the world, you can move forward onto the next thing you faced <laughs> probably one of the worst outcomes you could have. Hey, that eliminates a lot of barriers. So transitioning that we've laid all the groundwork for reasons why people have a hard time being authentic or naked at work. Can you describe for us what the meaning of being authentic is? And then some examples of good uses of being authentic. And it struck me some of the bad examples of people trying to be authentic, but really they're not. Yeah. So when I say being authentic, I don't mean, you know, hashtag authentic, hashtag no filter, right? Right. Authenticity is not a blanket pass to bring forward every dimension of your self and expect people to just take it, Right. When we think about authenticity and leadership, what I mean is bringing forward your full set of experiences in service to the people and teams you lead. So to think about if I know what it means to feel less than, 
then my people might experience that too. How can I make them feel safe? Or if I know what it feels like to fail spectacularly and the fear that that can uh, drive in terms of avoiding that in the future, my people may think that too. Let me help them with that. Let me share that part of me in service to them and their performance. And that's where I think people get it wrong, Greg, is uh, this idea of, you know, I am who I am, take me or leave me. That's really just an excuse for never learning or changing, right? So if people have to take you as you are, that's requiring a lot of the folks you lead. If you are making a choice to honor your authenticity in an environment that doesn't support that kind of authenticity, you need to do that in a really informed way. So for the example I use in the book is if you want to be a private equity banker in a buttoned up bank in a a high rise building in Manhattan, you probably shouldn't get a face tattoo because most people there don't have face tattoos. And that will create interference and distract from your performance. Now, if that is your most authentic expression of yourself, then maybe you just want to kind of work. Something else that you can think about. And so that's what I call forward for people is helping them understand that authenticity is about serving other people. So if you want to lead a team of private equity bankers with a face tattoo, yes, you may make the path easier for all other private equity bankers with face tattoos, but it's going to take a while because your face tattoo is going to be distracting every step of the way. And so the point I make of the book is I wish this were easier, right? I I wish this were about choosing to be authentic and period end. But the truth is that living out this authenticity in your leadership is a series of choices. It's a practice. And it's understanding the ramifications of that choice and choosing whether or not to move forward. So an example I went through very recently after having literally written the book on authenticity was in one of the final rounds of editing, my editor called me and said, hey, you make a choice in this book that I think is difficult and I'd like you to reconsider. And that's a pretty important call you get from your editor, right? That's not a word. Right. Thing, right. <laughs> and I said, what is that? And she said, you use the she pronoun throughout when you're referring to generic leaders. So for example, you know, the authentic leader knows herself, owns herself, and experience forward and service to her team is how that's written. And she said, you know, I'm, this is my editor, who's also a woman, said, I, I'm worried that people will think this is a book for women. And so I paused and I thought, you know, I made that choice deliberately. And I made it not originally. Uh, that is actually a choice made by Ben Horowitz, who wrote a terrific manual called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. If your listeners have not read Ben's book, they should. And he uses the female pronoun throughout. And it was distinctive to me as a female leader reading that book. And he and I actually emailed about it. And he said, yeah, I have four daughters and I'm tired of books that don't represent their leadership. People make a generic he choice or a generic they choice. I can make a generic she choice. And that stuck with me. And as I wrote the book, I thought, you know what? I'm going to contribute to that. 
But even in that moment when I was grounded in my choice, where I was sure about how it served me and where it absolutely backed the overall theme of the book, that call from my editor, Greg, made me think, am I sure? Do I really want to do this? What if it alienates people? What if they don't understand it? And then I thought, yeah, okay, that's okay. I'm going to explain it in the book. They're going to understand it and then they can choose. And if somebody opens this book and reads to page 30 and thinks, wow, this is a chick lit thing, huh? they're lost. That's the power of understanding your authentic choice and experience is being able to weigh it and think through what the ramifications are authentically and then making the choice about it. It also probably makes you think through your strategic decisions in general. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have to revisit a decision that's been made to make sure that it fits into, in your example, the effect that you're going for. So you can be very, very intentional about the choices that you're making. Uh, And maybe a little bit related to that, two other concepts that you describe, I think, around authenticity is a beginner's mindset. And that definitely spoke to me as well to come at everything, realize that you've learned other things before and you're just building on it. And then also later on, uh, the term productive discomfort. For me, I am a runner as well. It sounds like you've done some races and I think you even mentioned in the book of that's an easy concept to understand of like, if you're trying to get a little bit better or building on more miles, you're not going to do more than you can that you pass out on the side of the road. But of course you want to keep building on what you've done and building on what you've done. So can you talk about those couple of concepts and maybe how they even go hand in hand to again, be overall authentic as a leader? Yeah, and I think that awareness is key, right? Understanding where are you now? What are you facing? What's the challenge at hand? What are your unique abilities? And knowing that those are going to change throughout are really important. Um, that your ability to uh, navigate the hill, right, might be different day to day. That's something that we as runners know. You run the same route all the time, and one day it's particularly harder than the next, right? <laughs> But I think focusing on exactly where you are without anything tied to it, you know, as you run and that hill is harder, if you start thinking about why is this harder? Damn, I can't believe I can't do this, or I should be better than this, right? That just distracts, it just interferes with your performance. You can just notice this is harder than it was yesterday. And move from there, that retains energy for the task at hand, in that case, taking the hill. So when I work with leaders who are, and lots of us are runners, right, uh, and think about the idea of noticing where you are, noticing the information without tying it to expectation or shame or any other story you tell yourself and just responding there is probably the most important activity you can take in the moment. You're also building on what you've gained before just to make you a more well-rounded person. So the idea of building a habit, if you will, um, you tack on something new and something new that just gives you more tools in your toolkit to work with, to continue to motivate your team, to to continue to have energy and build off of your successes. Um, 
One more question before I let you go here. Towards the end of the book, uh, the concepts of trust, again, is something that really resonated with me. Can you talk about the three different types of trust that you cover and why that's so important to run an effective team? Sure. So um, the research on trust suggests that there are three kinds of trust present in any kind of professional organization or relationship. And that is interpersonal trust. Greg, I trust you. You trust me. That is uh, organizational trust. We work for a company and I believe that their systems and processes support us. And I believe that they will support us in the way they're intended, right? I'll be reviewed regularly. If there's some kind of problem, I can escalate it and people will believe me. The idea of uh, strategic trust. I believe this company is focused on the right things moving forward, that our idea is correct, our, our overall uh, impact is important. And as we think about it, we look at those three kinds of trusts playing together. And what we want to think about is if leaders are not authentic, it actually erodes each of the three kinds of trust. Said another way, when leaders operate authentically, they can build each of those kinds of trust. So they can build that interpersonal trust. We trust each other. They can build the trust in the organization and they can build the trust in the overall strategic focus of the company. The reason trust is so important is it breeds psychological safety. And this is the crux of why it's important to be authentic and make it at work is when you are authentic and you're able to build trust, your team feels safe. And so this isn't a self-help book. It's not about you sort of feeling better about who you are and singing Kumbaya around the fire. This is about leaders being more effective. And the data says that when leaders are authentic and build trust, they create psychological safety, which is something that Amy Edmondson out of Harvard has made really mainstream and popular. And what her research done with Google says is when people are psychologically safe, when they don't fear ramification, when they're not worried about what's next, they can create and iterate change at a rate that's far faster than if they felt unsafe. And so when we're thinking about innovation and creativity as being the drivers forward for business, the fastest way to that is for leaders to create a psychologically safe environment by being authentic. And it also illustrates one of the points that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation that this book is not just for executive level people because anybody that's been in the work world probably could give an example where they trust the organization, they can rally behind the leader and see ultimately the increased productivity and trust that comes from that as opposed to the other way. Like I mentioned, when I think of the phrase fail fast, I've certainly heard it before and I've seen cultures where it really is trusted and fostered and I've seen others where it really is not and you can see it in whether it's turnover of your staff or just a lot of unproductive time. So for anybody at any level, there are definitely things that you can get from the book and that you will certainly 
be able to relate to in your day-to-day work environment. So, Danessa, I really appreciate you being on the show. Do you want to go ahead and let folks know how they can contact you, um, where they can find you on social media, and then where they can get a copy of the book? Absolutely. So the book is available now online because that's where we're all doing our shopping. Anywhere it's called Make It at Work, A Leader's Guide to Fearless Authenticity. You'll see my name spelled in the uh, show notes, but it's Danessa Knapp, and that's K-N-A-U-P-P. And the reason that that's important is you can learn lots more at DanessaKnapp.com. My company is Avenue 8 Advisors, and we do executive coaching and Emerging leader coaching. We coach at all levels in organizations and we do leadership development workshops and keynote speaking as well. So if your listeners are interested in any of that, Avenue 8, the number 8 advisors.com can help them learn more about that. We'd be happy to help. Greg, thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of the book. It's a quick read. It's a fun read. And Danessa, I really appreciate your time. Of course. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Greg. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to suburbanfolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to ringmedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G media.com.